Yes, there we go. Um, a few years ago, some of y'all were around at this time. I guess it's been more than a few now. Maybe not. Depends on how. What's the difference between a few and several? Where do you draw that line? I'm not sure. Anyway, a few or several years ago, um, well, it's been several because Asa was a baby baby. Um, it's when we first merged. I decided to go back to school uh, and get my degree because uh, I thought the coal industry was dying because it was in one of these down cycles. And um, f- 40 years old when I went back to school and four kids, two jobs, pastor in a church and going to school. Yeah, crazy's a pretty good word. Um, people, I, I tell people in therapy all the time, kind of that little story, just because s- something happened in my life at that time that really has changed my life. And I'm not talking about the education. Um, I'm talking about the way that I learned how to live in that time. Um, anybody that, that, that has been in college have ever hear the phrase syllabus shock? Yeah, yeah. So you get the syllabus up front and you see all this stuff you got to do and how precise it's got to be and can't be this. And if you don't submit it in a PDF, you're going to get a zero. And my first master's class syllabus was 35 pages long. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I can do this. But I learned a life skill in that time that has really helped me. And what I did was I went up to graduation date into the future, okay, in my head, obviously. I didn't have a DeLorean to take me there. But uh, I went up into the future in my head, and I saw the graduation date, that last graduation date. And I put a flag there. Boom. This is the date. This is the time when all of this will be over. Okay? And it would have been nice to live there. But there was all this stuff before that that I was going to have to deal with. So then after planting that flag in my head and knowing that that's coming, it's coming. It's not here, but it's coming. I then developed a a focus of what's right here, right now. What was the next thing due? And then I'd focus on that. Knowing that the flag was out there. And knowing that there were many things piled up behind this thing right in front of my face. And I would focus on this. And when I got that done, then I focused on that thing that was behind it. And when I got that done, I focused on the thing that was behind it. Knowing that that flag was out there. And if I didn't know that flag was out there, I'd have just been looking at everything and thinking, I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. But I know that's coming. That's sure. That's set. And so now what I've got to do is do the next thing. And if I get done with this, there'll be something else after that. And there's all these little things before I get to that flag. But that flag was super important. Because that flag told me there is an end to this. There is a time when this won't be happening like this anymore. And if I didn't know that was there, I'd have never made it. And... Whether it was three, two, one year, six months, one month, three weeks. I'm getting there. One week, one more assignment. (sighs) Made it to the flag. By the grace of God, with the support of my family and you guys. You guys helped me a ton during that time. I'd sit back there sometimes and do my homework on Wednesday nights. But that flag made all the difference. Because I knew it was there. I knew it was coming. I knew that there was an end to all this. Well... Today, we're going to get started in on a passage that's going to tie in with next week's passage, Lord willing, that talks about that end, but not the end as much as it is the things that are right here in the faces of the disciples as they work toward that flag that they're pushing for. And their question was, what will be the signs that this has happened? Talking about the destruction of the temple and of your coming, end of the end of the age. That flag out there was the end of the age. And Jesus is saying, oh, it's there. And we'll talk about that some. But we're going to be really focused on what's right here. 
a lot today and then the flag next week more than likely. So if you would please stand, we're going to read Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 to 28. Fully convinced that these are the very words of God. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Oh. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, we trust in your unchanging grace. We trust in the almighty power of your Holy Spirit to teach us, instruct us, convict us, and build us up today. And since we trust you, we know that we will benefit from what's about to happen God, may it not be me, may it be you and your words that change us and shape us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 15. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, comma, dot, dot, dot. We're going to leave it right there for right now. Our first word today is so. And some of you are going a needle pulling thread. That's not what we're talking about. That word so obviously points us back to what came before it, right? If we say so, we're coming from a thing or things that were said previously. It's cold outside, so wear a coat. So, looking back at last week, Jesus had begun his discourse here answering the disciples' question or questions about when the temple would be destroyed and what would be the signs of Jesus' coming and the end of the age. And I said last week that I'm approaching this chapter as Jesus' way of answering their questions about the destruction of the temple, His coming, and the end of the age by telling them what would shortly take place in their lifetime, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the slaughter of over a million Jews, And while he's telling them about those things, he's also forecasting how that will resemble what happens sometime in the more distant future, which we're still waiting for today. I told Will this morning, the word that a lot of commentators use when you look in this chapter and their uh, discussion of it, the word is telescopically. Jesus is speaking telescopically. So he's speaking here and it telescopes out, whoops, into the distant future. So it's both and. That's how we're approaching this passage. And I think that's important um, as we work through, especially today. But I believe the disciples had no concept whatsoever of a distant future return or end of the age. I think they were looking for it then. Okay? And when they speak of His return, which I think we may talk about this later... They're not talking about Jesus going into heaven and coming back someday. They're talking about after He's resurrected, Him coming in power and restoring the kingdom. And we said, uh, I think it was last week, even in Acts 1, right before Jesus is ascending, and they don't really know what's going on, they're there and He's talking. They're like, hey, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they're asking about. They're not asking about us. They They don't have us in mind when they're asking their questions. So I think it's important to know that their thought pattern is there and that Jesus is answering their question about what's happening in their lifetime and then that will reflect on the plan that God has, which is far beyond anything they could think or imagine 
and coming into our time telescopically from there to here or wherever there is, wherever the end of time is. So, so he had begun answering those questions about his, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, his coming and the end of the age. So with him forecasting what, um, what's going to happen very soon that will resemble what's going to happen in the distant future, that's where we're at today. So last week Jesus said the most important thing for them was to not let themselves be led astray. Keep that in mind because that's super important. That was Jesus' first statement to him. See to it that no one leads you astray. And then he said that many will come in his name, claiming to be the Christ, deceiving many. He also said there would be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines in various places, and that that was just the beginning of what Jesus called the birth pains. He then warned of a coming persecution with the disciples being hated by all nations for Jesus' namesake, with many betraying one another, with many falling away, and an increase of lawlessness leading to the love of many growing cold. He then said that it is endurance that will show true salvation, and then finishing last week with the pronouncement that the gospel of the kingdom would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, and then the end will come. So, Jesus says today, in light of all that, So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Well, now, we we obviously have to ask the question, what's that all about, right? Well, if those of you that were with us before we started Matthew, we did a two-week series, I think it was, of kind of an overview of Old Testament history and then into the intertestamental period, that 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in that uh, message on the intertestamental period, uh, we referenced some passages from Daniel and also mentioned some of the um, powers, the the kingdoms that took over Israel and the Jews in that 400-year period between the Old and the New Testament because Daniel had forecasted several things that would happen, especially in that time period. Now, one of the powers that took over Israel in that 400-year period between the Old and the New Testament was the kingdom of Greece. Okay, Greece is the word here, okay? In the late 300s BC, so it's like 323, I think, up to his death uh, in 323, there it is, Alexander the Great... Uh, y'all might have heard of that guy. He, he had taken over the largest portion of the known world, including the Persian Empire, which had been the dominant world power before then. So Alexander the Great and the Greeks take over basically the largest kingdom in the world, and they're the force in the world, and in all of that they take over Israel as well. Now, after Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided among eight leaders, and later that was whittled down to four people who was who were looking over his kingdom and running the kingdom. After a bit of time, one of the leaders of the Greek kingdom is a man who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Now the Epiphanes part is translated as God manifest, which was a common name adopted by many rulers prior to him. So he wasn't the first to do it, but he literally called himself God manifest. He was God in the flesh. Interesting, huh? Well, this Antiochus Epiphanes, whom the Jews called Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman, by the way, he was prone to take out his frustrations, for whatever reason, on the Jews. He hated the Jews. I think it was demonic, just between us and the world wide web here. And at some point, he forbade the Jews from practicing their religion at all. Okay? And in 174 B.C., He sent some priests all throughout his kingdom to sacrifice pigs to Zeus, who he actually thought he was. He thought he was the embodiment of Zeus. And so he sends his priests out to make sacrifices to Zeus, and he's sacrificing pigs because, well, hey, we got to have a barbecue, right? And so one place that he sacrificed a pig to Zeus was where? In the temple of the Jews. Well, a pig was an unclean animal, and Zeus was an unclean god, a false god. And so many saw this sacrifice of the pig in the temple to Zeus as the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about in a few places 
Uh, Daniel 11.31 is one. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, which is exactly what Antiochus did. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Okay? So many people see this thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did as this, as a fulfillment of this. Now, a quick definition of terms shows that an abomination is something that causes extreme disgust or hatred. That's an abomination. And desolation means a state of complete emptiness or destruction. So this thing that Antiochus did was an abomination to the Jewish people and it left their temple desolate or figuratively destroyed. They couldn't go in once it was made unclean by the unclean sacrifice of an unclean animal to an unclean false deity and sacrifice holy offerings to a holy God. So that abomination made their temple desolate. And then after that we get the story of how Hanukkah came to be with the Maccabees who go in and they clean the temple. They take over the the city again and they clean the temple and cleanse it. We won't get into that so much today. But this abomination that makes desolate, which Daniel predicted around 400 years prior to its happening, that happened about 200 years prior to Jesus speaking in our passage today. Okay, Daniel prophesied about it about 400 years before it happened. And then about 200 years after it happened, Jesus is saying what he's saying here today in Matthew 24. Okay, Keep that timeline straight because that's kind of important. So Jesus mentions here in our passage, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So what's he talking about? Was he talking about what had already happened? Couldn't be, right? He couldn't be talking about something in the future coming that had already happened in the past, right? So he's not talking about what Daniel had predicted, but he was talking about something like it, okay? And we know that the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 by the Romans, well, that that would surely qualify for something like this, right? It would be an abomination and it would make the temple desolate or destroyed, right? So again, Jesus addressing his men in that time about things that must shortly come to pass in regard to their question, when will this temple be destroyed? Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, When you see that, and then let the reader understand. Okay? So when you see this, he says to his 12 here, there was a close fulfillment that was coming of this thing that Jesus is talking about. And we're saying there there probably will be a later one as well. So it forecasts that at the end of all things, there will be an abomination that makes desolate as well. But... Jesus says here to his twelve that when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, when they see this happening, and then this phrase in parenthesis in your English Bible, let the reader understand. Now what's that all about? Well, first it's pretty clear that Matthew added that phrase. Since it's talking about readers, right? Not hearers. So Jesus wouldn't have looked at his disciples and said, let the reader understand. When he's, when he's having this discourse, right? So it's something that Matthew has added. And actually what's funny is, Matthew's making an appeal to the readers of his gospel to kind of lean in and pay attention here. And if you look at Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, Mark says the same thing. There's actually a parenthesis in Mark that says, let the reader understand at this point. Now it's pretty commonly and widely held that Matthew leaned on Mark's account, Mark's gospel, which they say that Mark really got his information from Peter, When Matthew's laying out his gospel, he kind of builds it around Mark's gospel using a whole lot of the same material and adding a few other things here and there. And here he literally kind of plagiarizes Mark and says, yep, Mark's right. Let the reader understand what's going on here. Okay? So it's it's Matthew's way of saying, lean in here, pay attention. Uh, Know what I'm talking about here. It's a call to the reader to make sure that they are in tune with what's going on And it also may have been a little bit of code to make sure that any Roman that may have gotten a hold of this wouldn't be too apt to take these things as a call to revolution or anything. So he didn't speak explicitly. 
He's saying, hey, here's something. Understand what I'm saying. Kind of wink, wink here. Pay attention. Now, what's next? So let the reader understand. When I see the abomination of desolation, so then what? Matthew 24, 16. Is this changing? Can y'all change that for me? I don't think mine's working. 24, 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So that's verse 16. So Jesus says, when the reader sees the abomination of desolation, Jesus says to his disciples, when they see the abomination of desolation and they understand what it is, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so again... Put this in the context of those first century Jews reading Matthew's gospel. And this probably either seemed like a very weird thing to say or a very clear clue that Jesus was talking about something in their immediate context. Why would I say that? Well, something's going to threaten the temple. The abomination will make the temple desolate. Well, where's the temple? It's in Jerusalem, right? And where would the Jews go if there was any kind of unrest? Anything that they were unsure of? Fear, battles, wars. They would go to Jerusalem. Why? Walls, reinforcements, people, uh, warriors, people that would protect them. So if they felt threatened at all, they'd flock to Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying here, don't run to the strong defenses. Don't run to the walls. Jesus says, but when this stuff starts happening in Jerusalem, don't head to Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. Now, Judea was the area in the south of Palestine which housed Jerusalem, the southern Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea. And again, these people would have always looked at Jerusalem as the stronghold. But Jesus tells the folks there in Jerusalem to flee to the mountains, go away from Jerusalem. And actually, in 70 AD, when the Romans did come in, a lot of people died because they started headed to Jerusalem, which is where the attack really started. And if they'd have fled away from Jerusalem, fewer people would have died. But they start heading to Jerusalem for their safety, for their security. But Jesus had told his guys beforehand, don't do that. Run to the mountains. Jesus foretells this issue and says, flee away from the city and look for safety in the mountains. But that's not all of his advice. Verses 17 and 18. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus doesn't just say, run away from the city, but he says to do it post-haste. It was common for houses in the first century here to have flat roofs. The roofs are roofs. Roofs roofs. They would have flat roofs and that's where people would gather, kind of like their front porch kind of deal. They'd sit up on the top uh, flat roof and that's where they'd gather, where they'd sit, where they'd rest. And Jesus says if you're up on the top of the house and all this starts happening, don't go down in the house to get your stuff to carry it with you. Get out of town as fast as you can. Forget your stuff. Forget anything that would cause delay in heading for the hills. And if you happen to be in the field working, Don't turn back to get your cloak. It was common for them to take off their outer garment when they were working. And Jesus says, if you're out there working and don't have your outer garment on, don't bother going back to get it. Get moving, get fleeing, head for the hills. And the point here is that nothing should take precedence over making the straightest, fastest line to find safety In the mountains. And in the mountains there were cave after cave after cave after cave in that area. So that that would be the safest place for them. Run to the hills. Find a cave. Hide and hope that you preserve your life by getting there. And don't let anything. Nothing in the house. Nothing back where your cloak is. Don't let anything get your focus away from getting to the mountains. And finding your safety there. You get the feeling that Jesus is saying... This is going to come quickly. And it will come with such fear and force that people will not know what to do. But he's giving his men, and hence their disciples after them, some instructions on how to salvage their lives in the midst of all of this. Any hindrance, any hesitation would be problematic. Look at verses 19 and 20. He gives some examples. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. You're going to have to be in a hurry, in a purposeful rush. So alas, sorrow for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And that just makes pretty simple sense, doesn't it? As much of a blessing as pregnancy and nursing babies are, and they surely are, pregnancy and nursing babies will hinder those who are trying to make a quick exit into the hills in those evil days. Which just gives you more clarity on how important it is to get out of there in a hurry. Hard to outrun Roman soldiers when you're pregnant or carrying or nursing an infant, isn't it? And what else slows people down? Winter does. I had plans this past Thursday to get out and I get out and there's snow everywhere. I can't see the, the ground. I can't see the road in front of me. Slowed me down. So he says, pray it's not in winter, which I say yes and amen to. Yes and amen. They didn't have Subarus back then, right? Cold, snow, ice, treacherous travel conditions. That would slow you down. And also if it's the Sabbath, when you could be purposefully, would be purposefully hunkered down, purposefully focused on rest and having no plans to travel, no animals ready, no clothes or shoes ready, that's going to slow you down, right? And not to mention those who would say you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath, calling you down and asking why in the world are you running on the Sabbath? You can't run on the Sabbath. Shut up, I'm out of here. Or maybe even there's a lot of people gathered in the temple or the local synagogues on the Sabbath and they're just sitting ducks for the marauding Roman soldiers, right? And they would just sweep into the synagogue or the temple and take them all out together. Alas for these women. Pray that your flight might not be in the winter on a Sabbath and it just makes good sense. Why? Verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now this is quite an interesting statement here. And we know it's true because it's in the Bible. And here's where a lot of people will say that Jesus has to be referring to the great tribulation that our dispensational friends talk about in their end times charts. And again, hear me say, I can't look at these dispensationalists and say, no, you're wrong. I can't do that. I, 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 I'd remind you that I do believe that Jesus is talking about soon to come and not so soon to come events, both. But both events can't be this, right? I mean, it does say that this great tribulation will be worse than anything since the beginning and nothing in the future will ever be worse. So if the mayhem in the first century is the worst ever... Nothing in the future can be worse, right? So it's like you've got to kind of pick a side here, right? Is it just the stuff in the first century or is it the great tribulation to come that he's warning them of? Well, why would he be warning them of the future time? Well, he's warning us of the future time, maybe. So which is it? All I can say is that the dispensationalists have a pretty good point here. But I'm not convinced that Jesus was just talking about a distant future time. I know that we cannot in any way, shape, or form, or fashion, <laughs> imagine the horrors that these first century Jews went through in that Roman onslaught in 70 AD. It actually lasted a few years. It wasn't just 70 AD. 70 AD was the final ending of it all. Try telling them in the first century that anything could be worse than what they went through at that time. Try telling them that Jesus' words weren't for them. And I am firmly convinced that as things move from bad to worse in our times toward the end times, things are going to get awfully bad. We talked about that last week. Maybe as bad as it could possibly be. And again, here's that word. I do believe Jesus is speaking telescopically to both them and to those in the end times that we haven't yet experienced. How can it be both? I believe you can say, this is the worst thing ever, or this is the worst. Everybody, Tim Hawkins, ever hear that bit? You know, when you show up to the mall five minutes early and your friends aren't there yet, that's the worst, right? I don't know that we've got to put 
the weight of the interpretation on this phrase. That's what I'm going to say. I'll say it that way. Does it break down if I say Jesus meant one time, one place, and it can't be anything else? I don't think this passage breaks down if we put, if we don't put all that weight on these, these few words here. Now, what's he talking about? I, I believe specifically he's talking to them then and saying, get out of town because it's going to be awful. It's going to be worse than it's ever been and as bad as or worse than it's ever going to be. And then remember... Over a million Jews lost their life in this onslaught. That, that's a lot of people, y'all. That's a lot of people. Does it mirror what will happen in the end times? I, I believe that our passage is kind of pointing to that. And my point in saying all that is, with Jesus speaking telescopically, I believe he who exists outside of time can look at two events and say, that's awful, that's terrible. And we have a hard time reconciling that. And I know that you'll probably leave this message and say, that's pretty weak, Jason. That's all I got for you. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. I don't know exactly who Jesus is, what, what events Jesus is speaking about specifically, but I do believe he's speaking to them about the events that are happening in their day and time. As bad as it could possibly be, and nothing will ever be worse. And verse 22 is similar in my estimation. Verse 22 <clears throat> And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. <clears throat> I would encourage you to listen to John MacArthur's message on this passage. And John MacArthur is full dispensationalist, okay? Again, I'm not going to sit and argue with him and tell him he's wrong. I, he's, he's studied it much more than I have. But he talks about, and I'm just going to just listen for the... the, the the section of that where he's talking about the days being cut short. It's pretty interesting. I'm not going to get into it this morning. I'll just leave it out there. Grace to you, gty.org is the, is the website. And you can look it up by scripture in the sermons. For the days being cut short. Again, I'm not going to address that the way he does. But, <clears throat> but here in verse 22, When this tribulation comes upon the hearers of Jesus' words and whomever else, I'm not sure we can fathom how bad it will be. Jesus says that if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Now breathe that in. If those days had not been cut short, if there wasn't an input to them, the whole human race would be wiped out. That's pretty bad, right? Yes, yes, that is bad. And those are sobering words. And again, Jesus said them, so we know that Jesus means them. Horrendous loss of life that will make it appear that everybody's going to die. People will fear that it's going to take the lives of literally everyone. But, Jesus says, look at this. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now look at that. Not everybody will die. That's good news. And the reason everybody won't die is that God will cut those days short. Now note that. God will keep everyone from dying. Why? For the sake of who? For the sake of the elect. God's elect. God's people. God's got a plan. And He's got a people who He is going to use in this plan. Yes, there is horror and terror in all of this discourse by Jesus. Yes, He's warning His disciples of the wrath to come. But He's also, listen, 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 listen. He's also announcing the plan of God. And God's plan always includes God's people. And in the midst of the worst... The literal worst. God has the best in mind for His people. Write that down. Memorize what I just said. Not me. In the midst of the worst, God has the best in mind for His people. Not the best in that He keeps them from trials and struggles, but the best in that He is directing all of history around His people and His work in and through them. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
God's plan, including God, God's people, means that God is working all things. It's almost like there's a verse about that, right? For we know. Do you know? All things. All things. God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who are the called according to his purpose. All things. Man, that looks like a nice flag to plant somewhere, doesn't it? For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. More on that in application. But now verses 23 and 24. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now Jesus again warns of the danger. This is the third time he said something of this sort. He's warned of the danger of being led astray in the midst of all this persecution. It's pretty much human nature to do whatever needs to be done in order to escape hurt, harm, suffering, and persecution. And you can guarantee that the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people will be active at this time advertising help and escape and peace. And what better way to appeal to the people of God than to say that you're sent from God? So, if anyone says that the Christ, the anointed of God, is here or there, do not believe it, Jesus says. False Christs and false prophets will come along, they will arise, but they're not just going to say things, they're going to perform great signs and wonders. There will be some sort of power behind these false Christs and false prophets, and these won't be penny anti signs and wonders, they'll look like God Himself working, though it's not God Himself working. There'll be false signs, false wonders authored by the devil himself, who, remember, has no real power to work God-like signs and wonders. But his false signs and wonders will succeed in deceiving many, even if possible, Jesus says, the elect. But note that, if possible. If possible. And you know what that means? That means it's not possible. It's not possible. God God is actively protecting His elect, not just from death. Some will die. Not all of them are going to die. He's not just protecting them from death, though. He's also protecting His people, His elect, from being deceived by false Christs and false prophets. Listen, God's elect will not be deceived. You know what I can't fathom? I can't understand. Well, yeah, I can because I used to be one. I can't understand people who get mad at that word elect. They're like, wow, that's not what that means. It is what it means. Praise God it is what it means. God did the choosing, and since He did the choosing, He's going to do the keeping. He's done the saving, so He's going to do the persevering. God never runs for re-election. And you don't have to either if He's elected you. This is fantastic news. God's elect will not be deceived. God says so. Jesus is in charge. And He's making it known that He is the one directing all of this. Verse 25. Simple statement. See? I have told you beforehand. And again, there's not much that needs to be said about that, right? Jesus is just making the point that none of this should take them by surprise when it unfolds. Why? Because they've already heard about it. And listen, church, so have you. When things start to rip apart at the very seams, God said this would happen. When we're seeing things that people are saying, I can't believe this happened. I go, well, can't say I'm really surprised. Oh, not down to the penny, to the letter, that you know everything that's going to happen. But we're not shocked by anything. He told us beforehand. I'm telling you before it happens. Here's a flag. Go plant it up there. Leave it there. And know that these things are going to happen. So as they come, deal with them, knowing that your flag's planted back there. I told you beforehand. 
Don't let these things shake your faith. Terror, horror, death, destruction, deception. And we go, man, these are awful. And he told us beforehand that it was going to happen. I'm telling you before it happens, and it will happen. So if they say, or whatever, whether it's the wilderness or the inner rooms, don't believe it. Don't go. Why? Verse 27. Woo, here we go. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now this. This is interesting to say the least. Remember, they've asked him what the signs will be of his coming. And now that could mean some different things. Did they mean, when they asked that, that they knew he would leave, ascend into heaven, and then come back after a period of time? Doubtful. Them asking about his return would be when he returns in all of his glory, all of his power, and sets up the kingdom, right? He had said he would die and then be resurrected. Well, surely they thought after resurrection, he's going to return. That's going to be his return. That's what they're looking for. So Jesus has said that they should be mindful to not be deceived. Now, why the emphasis on not being deceived? Because their expectations are not going to be met. Jesus is going to die, he's going to be buried, then he's going to be resurrected, and then what? Then he's going to go away. Now he told them that too, but they they didn't hear it, they didn't receive it. And like we said before, Jesus will say himself that he doesn't know what the day of his return will be. So here in verse 27 of Matthew 24, he brings their attention to the fact that all these signs and pointers can be easily manipulated... And they are not to be focused on signs and pointers. Don't focus on, well, look at this, we'll look at this, we'll look at this. This is happening, aha, this must mean this. Don't do that. That's what he's saying. He's going away. They are to be focused on him. They're to be focused on that flag up there. They are to be focused on His words, His teachings. And He will come. But it's going to be like lightning coming and shining from the east and shining as far as the west. Sudden, powerful, riveting. You're not going to have to wonder, is this it? Could this possibly be what leads up to that? Could this be happening right before our eyes? Bam! That's the coming of the Son of Man. Lightning. Stop getting focused on all these signs and wonders because if you get focused on them, you're going to be led astray. Stop worrying about the details. Focus on that flag. And when you see the flag, you're going to know it. You're not going to wonder, hey, is this it? Bam! Lightning east to west, lighting up the sky. Next week we'll see even those who pierced him will look upon him. There's going to be no doubt about it. And he told us that beforehand. Don't listen to people saying, come over, come over here and look, or look at this, look over there. You won't have to wonder if it's him or not. He's going to come, and when he comes, you won't wonder if it's him or not. You'll know. Don't go chasing your tail looking for wild fancies that just might maybe be Jesus. I heard a rumor that there's a cow in Israel. Who cares? Y'all know what I'm talking about, Right? And for those of you that believe that, I just can't help but look at this verse and Jesus say, you're going to know it when it happens. And you're going to know it's the return of the Son of Man. And we love to chase a false Messiah because it's sensational. And it takes up all of our emotional energy, our mental energy. And Jesus is saying, don't Do that. You'll know it when I come. Remember who He is. Remember what He has told you. And when He arrives, you'll know. The Son of Man, the one standing in front of them right now as He speaks these words, whose voice they are hearing at that moment, He will return. And when He does, there'll be no questions. Lightning strike. No doubt. No time to question. And then finally, this at the end of our passage today, verse 28. Hmm. 
wherever the corpse is, <laughs> there the vultures will gather. Okay. Uh, hmm. What's that mean? You're like, you tell me, preacher. <laughs> well, actually, I, I struggle with this quite a bit and have and will continue to. And I actually think it ties the next passage into this passage. Again, this is all one discourse. Jesus is speaking in an orderly fashion. But I do want to explore it here for just a moment. So Jesus just said that his coming will be like lightning. And now he uses an analogy of corpses and vultures. Hmm. So this has had me thinking quite a bit. And I've heard a lot, read a lot, thought a lot. And I've always thought of Jesus' return as the time when he takes the church out of the world. Rapture, right? But will that happen? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know. I can't definitively say yes or no to that right now. Matthew 24 has got me messed up, y'all. But this statement here, It sounds like his return is an act of judgment marked by death. Death being judgment as he makes all things right. With vultures gathering around corpses. They're going, I don't like that. Well, I don't either. And we'll explore that more next week when we look at verses 29 to 35. But I'm going to leave that hanging right there. I'm going to leave you hanging with vultures and corpses as we end our passage today. And some of y'all are going to leave here today saying, what did he say? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I don't know. But hopefully next week will give us a little bit more light about this lightning and about these vultures and these corpses. But for now, we're going to look at application from our passage today. And we'll be looking at application through three F's. False, fate, and finish. I could have done flag instead of finish, by the way, but finish. First is false. Okay, time and time and time again over these last couple of weeks, last week and this week, Jesus has talked about the danger of being led astray. False prophets, false miracles, false workers, okay? As long as there is a true in this fallen world, there will be a false. As long as there's a genuine, there will be a counterfeit. That's how the enemy works. Fakers and phonies will always be a part of what's going on in our world. I saw an ad the other day... um, Taylor guitars are pretty expensive, and I saw an ad, a banner ad that said, Taylor guitar, $99. Tell me more. Oh, they didn't really tell you more. They just had pictures and $99, and I'm like, they're more than that, like, all the time. So I went to Taylor's website, and I'm just like, you know, and they've got an FAQ, frequently asked question, are there counterfeits out there? And they said, you bet there are. And you know what their statement was? If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. It's not true, right? False, phonies, fakers, they're out there and they will always be there with false words, false prophecies, false signs. The Lord told me last night. What? Chapter and verse. Give me, give me. No, 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 I had this dream and it was a special revelation. Okay, I'm done with this. Well, there is that one verse that says this, and I think it means this. I'm done with that too. Or, hey, you know, I I can see that Jesus is coming because this is lining up and this is lining up and this is lining up. Okay, I'm I'm done with that too. That's pretty harsh. See to it that no one leads you astray. 
Because there will be people that try. Second Peter one, uh, Second Peter two one through three. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It's going to happen, God knows it, and God's going to take care of it. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You know what? Paul's saying here, you know what Peter just said? It's going to be in the church. Don't fall for it. How, 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 how can I not fall for it? Uh, Luke read this in the opening scriptures, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. And here's the first part of the application is know that it's going to happen. Know that they're out there. Know that they're gonna, and here's what we do. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Be careful. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Listen, verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles, the apostolic teaching. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If somebody's telling you of their high-sounding dream or their high-sounding vision or their new interpretation of something the Bible has said for years and years and years and years, run. Don't entertain it. And listen, you got a whole world wide web full of it. You got books in print from Christian distributors full of it. Come back to the Bible. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the Apostle John says. Not Providence Bible Church. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And I like that in verse 5. They speak from the world and the world listens to them. And that's saying, don't y'all do that. Be discerning. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Okay? So that's false. Now fate. This has a hidden application point in it too. Fate. The end of all things. Let me read the definition for fate. The will or principle or determining cause by which things in general are believed to come to be as they are or events to happen as they do. Fate is that mysterious force, that determining cause. It's our destiny. But listen, I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in some mysterious force. Makes for good movies, but not so much good living. What, no better, who is causing things to come to be as they are? Here's an F, another F for you. Our Father. Our Father is causing all things to happen as they happen. Our Father, not fate, is in control of what comes next. Your future, church, the world's future is in the Father's hands. It's the language of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Pray then this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when your Father who sees you in secret will reward you out in the open. John twenty seventeen, Jesus said to her, to Mary, Don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now listen to this. But go to my brothers, Jesus says about the apostles, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. 
to my God and your God. I'm not trusting in fate. I'm trusting in my Father. This is my Father's world. My Father set the flag back there. And Luke 12, 32, probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now that's a flag I can shoot for. That's a flag I can look toward and say, my Father is finding a lot of pleasure in giving me the kingdom. Which leads us to the last F, which is finish. Listen, church, we're tired. We're weary. I hate these things. And all of this has a time, not just this, all of this. When it's all done. And that's important to know if we're going to weather whatever storms come our way. i got to know the flag is back there if I'm going to address this here. And then this here. And then this here. And then this here. My goal is the flag as I fight through the day-to-day existence. Whatever that may look like. It's good to know the end before it happens, right? There is an end to all this suffering, all this pain. There is an end to all this sin. And that's as sure as your suffering and your pain and your sin as well. There's an end to it. I'll weather through, I'll push through, I'll kick through, I'll cry through, I'll fall down and He'll pick me up and I'm going to make it. Because there's an end. Philippians 3, 12 to 16. Got three passages and we'll be done. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, that flag up there, the end of all things, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What we have attained is that which will be when all this is over. Those whom he foreknew. What? It leads to glorification. And all that's already happened. Hold true to that which we have attained and press on toward it knowing that we will get there by His grace. Hold true to that. Press on to that. Revelation 21, 1-7. You want to know what it looks like? Y'all, I use this a lot. I can't help it. It's just too good. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And if you go on in that passage, Jesus says, write this down because it's true. I have done this. That's the flag. So what do we do? Application-wise, go to Titus 2, 11 through 14. Does that ring a bell with anybody? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Focus on this, knowing that the flag is back there. Live upright, godly, righteous lives in the present age. Next thing, next thing, next thing. What is godly, what is righteous, what is good. Knowing that I'm going to make it to that which is perfect. 
And you don't have to wonder if that's going to happen. You don't have to listen to the false Christ saying something else or to get your attention off of that flag, which is the perfection of Christ when God dwells with man and we dwell with Him. Our fate is in the Father's hand. And there is a finish to all of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your way is perfect. We rest in that. We trust in that. And we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. We remember who you are and what you've done, and we proclaim that your work and your person is just as efficient and sufficient today as it was as you stood that day and spoke to your disciples. God, may we not chase rabbits and chase our tails and try to figure out what this and that means, but may we focus on the upward call that you have us in towards you, toward the perfection that is ours and that we will realize at the end of all things. You will make this happen and we trust you and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Church, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed. If you want to congregate, it's cold out there, but we'll love you better out there.